Hello and welcome to A Glimpse into the Future. My name is Rigas Hadzilakos, and in this podcast series, we explore with some of the world's leading experts how new technologies and ideas can help us shape our future. In this week's episode, my colleague Gemma Corrigan talks to Dr. Iris Bonnet and Professor Robert J. Schiller. Dr. Bonnet is the director of the Women in Public Policy program at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and co-chair of the World Economic Forum's Council on the Future of Behavioral Sciences. Professor Schiller is a sterling professor of economics at Yale University and also a member of the Council on the Future of Behavioral Sciences. Bob, there has been a lot of interest lately in behavioral sciences. What are behavioral sciences and how can they be applied in our society and economy today? Let me describe that as a reaction against the kind of economics that has been very popular for a half century or more. Milton Friedman in the 1950s wrote a book called Essays on Positive Economics. He was a famous economist, thought leader, and he said, you know, economists shouldn't try to ask people or test what people do. We should pursue what would a rational person do. So his example was, suppose you want to describe the actions of a skilled billiards player. What would you do? Ask him? So you, point to, you could point to a, a situation on the billiard table and say, why did you make this shot? The billiard player can't tell you. So the best thing to do is to ask a theoretical physicist to optimize and calculate what the optimal shot is. Uh, and then you're using a mathematical model to describe his behavior. But that's the best you can do. Uh, that held sway for a long time. But now economists think, an emerging group of economists think, that, you know, uh, you, you could study the billiard player, and it might be better than relying on a mathematical model that some physicist came up with. Human behavior is quirky. It's, uh, it's not reducible to a simple formula. Uh, people in other social sciences have known that for a long time. It's starting to seep in. You do experiments. You collect information on what people actually do. And this gives a better sense of reality to economics. Thanks, Bob. Iris, do you have any examples that showcase how behavioral sciences can be applied in practice? For me, the exciting part about uh, behavioral economics now is that it still focuses on what Bob just described, understanding how real people behave, but also now use these very same insights to help all of us, given our bounded rationality, make better decisions. Sometimes we call it kind of the nudge theory um, or behavioral design. Um, and you know, it has been applied really across the field, I mean, to financial decision-making, consumer behavior, health, educational choices. Um, but let me maybe focus on two which help organizations, in fact, um, run more effectively. So uh, some colleagues of ours have been uh, quite interested in the question of ethics. Um, and that's you know, a hard topic and even hard to measure. And, um, but th they were struck by the following observation, that sometimes we attest before, beforehand that we will say the truth and nothing but the truth. And sometimes we sign afterwards that we have just reported the truth and nothing but the truth. 
And so that's an empirical question. Is it better to do it before or after? And of course, there's lots of differences between those two scenarios. One is a courtroom, one might be my tax bill. So they designed an experiment and uh, they've now run an experiment, uh, but also run it with an insurance company, now working with the first um, country to redesign the tax form and found that in fact, people report more honestly and more accurately when they sign beforehand and not afterwards as we usually do. And uh, the reason for that, I mean, it's, you know, the mechanisms are not completely obvious, not completely clear, hard to measure in an experiment, but the best guess that the researchers um, make is that we're triggering a part of people's identity by having them sign beforehand, and that reminds them um, kind of, of moral values. And that's why uh, they didn't actually live up to those expectations. But when you sign afterwards, something that we call the self-serving bias is kicking in, where we are making sense of the kinds of things that we've just said. Bob, what are some other examples that we have seen work today? Well, we have something uh, that uh, Thaler and Sunstein called libertarian paternalism. People make mistakes. And governments uh, often, in view of that, make regulations uh, forbidding certain practices or requiring things. That, that's called paternalism. Uh, but often, it, but we, we, we face a, a, a more subtle problem. Sometimes people make mistakes. Sometimes they do things for their own, for good reasons, uh, that the government might not understand. So Milton Friedman said, freedom to choose is very important. So let, let's do it. For, let's give you an example. Uh, when people sign up for a job, they're often told that the employer will offer to match their contributions to a retirement plan called a 401k plan. Uh, you think that everyone would jump at that. Uh, I can contribute to my retirement, and then I'll get a matching uh, gift from my employer. But you know, a lot of people don't. And they'll go years and years and they'll never sign up. And then when they retire, they don't have anything. So we could require that they contribute. That's one thing. But another thing is just to change, and this is a result of some experimentation, change the uh, procedure. When you first take a job, you will get a letter. Instead of saying, please call this number to sign up, the letter instead says, you are already signed up. We, we signed you up for the retirement plan, and your paycheck will be deducted. If you don't like this, call this number, <laughs> okay? Well, it turns out very few people call the number to cancel this, uh, and they end up with pension. We haven't made things, we haven't required things, but we've just changed the, uh, the choice architecture, as uh, Thaler and Sunstein say, to make it more... Um, likely that they'll do the right thing. Fantastic. Iris, what do we see as some opportunities that behavioral sciences might unlock in the future? How do we see them transforming societies and our systems over the next 10 to 15 years? In many ways, um, sometimes I describe behavioral science as helping us make smarter decisions. So it is the kinds of decisions um, which are good for ourselves, but also for society. And one of my um, passions is to think about how we can equalize the playing field um, for for any people independent of their demographic backgrounds. And so I'm expecting that uh, behavioral science is actually going to make quite a difference 
in how we structure our organizations. So, for example, some of our own work looked at, um, and actually built on an insight from behavioral science um, that goes as follows. It is very hard for human beings to make absolute judgments about anything. So whether or not we like the coffee um, that we have, um, we, we had this bre uh, for breakfast, has something to do with the kinds of coffees we're used to. So these relative judgments, um, building on the reference point, some sort of uh, um, anchor that helps us evaluate them, a product, but also people, are quite important in decision-making. And that builds on work by uh, Donnie Kahneman and Amos Tversky, um, kind of two of the founding fathers um, of the discipline. And um, so we've applied this now to people judgments, where we could show that when people uh, make one-off decisions, just evaluate one job candidate, for example, um, they're more likely to use the stereotype as their anchor, their reference point to make that judgment. But when we show uh, an evaluator two people at the same time, they use the other person, so to speak, as a reference point and are more likely to focus on people's qualifications, competencies, and performance rather than the stereotype. And that's, you know, that's the kind of idea that can have um, huge impacts on any organization um, in the next 10 years, uh, because many organizations, of course, now do want to benefit from 100% of the talent pool and want to hire uh, uh, smartly and fairly. And I think I, I see a lot of opportunity for behavioral insights um, to play a role there. Bob, the new inclusive development index that just came out points to growing concerns on income inequality around the world. We desperately need some new approaches so that more people benefit from growth. How do you see behavioral science helping us solve this issue, for example? Inequality has been a big theme at World Economic Forum. When the problem is dealing with thing, proposing something that will effectively deal with the risk that inequality is getting much worse. Uh, there's talk of technological changes that might make a large part of the population unemployable or unemployable at a decent wage. Uh, so we have to think about how behavioral science might correct that. To me, uh, I want to, I, I've, been, I've written about this. I think that we need to think of changes in our laws uh, and practices that uh, make it possible to redistribute in a way that's acceptable. It's called framing. It's a big theme in behavioral science. The, the voting public does not seem to want to vote for tax the rich and give it to the poor. Uh, or it wouldn't be a stable system. They, they consider that uh, unfair to the rich, apparently, at least in the United States. And, uh, but I think we might have a massive problem. We have to somehow reframe it so it sounds acceptable. Uh, one thought is, uh, uh, in the past, we've done a lot to redress inequality by instituting public education. It started out with elementary school education. Then there was the high school movement uh, around the, uh, 100 years ago. And now uh, colleges are increasingly subsidized by the government. That is more acceptable. So we have to think about framing things like that. Another thing that I have proposed is creating what's called insurance, or I call it inequality insurance. Uh, I think it was Daniel Kahneman who once showed that if you describe insurance to someone and said, would, without using the word insurance, and ask them, will you buy this, they're less likely than if you call it insurance. That sounds like a venerable institution. So I want to create 
this is my proposal, which hasn't gotten a lot of traction. Mm -hmm. I'd like to create inequality insurance that would automatically compensate people if, if the inequality in the country gets worse in the future. Then it would be something that would, I think, more likely happen than uh, if there had been no plan made or no reframing of the issue. As we look to the fourth industrial revolution, what is the interplay between technology and behavioral science? So I think um, behavioral science has uh, had an influence both at a very low tech level in that, for example, the UK has used behavioral insights to reframe its tax forms, uh, reminding late payers that everyone else is paying, and that increased the likelihood that the late payers actually paid, right? That's a very low tech type of intervention. But then others, um, actually uh, quite a large number of startups now, are building on these behavioral insights. Uh, for example, to de-bias the hiring process. So one star startup uh, has uh, quite literally built a tool that uses insights from behavioral science such as um, blind evaluation uh, procedures, such as comparative evaluations, such as benefiting from the wisdom of the crowd by having people evaluate a candidate separately and then, in fact, aggregating the um, average that they gave the candidate uh, to improve the hiring process. Uh, so, so yeah, so I think um, definitely technology is going to be able um, to bring some of these insights to scale. This is all fascinating. However, are there any risks associated with these tools being used for the wrong reasons? What is your perspective on that? Well, I have to bring up, in this context, the marketing department. Every major business school has a marketing department, and they are engaging in what might be called behavioral science, although they don't tend to use that word. Marketing is a powerful tool. It affects so much that it's a huge industry, and when you watch television, you'll see all kinds of ads, or read a newspaper, any, the ads are everywhere. A lot of them are manipulative. It can be for either good or for bad. Uh, so I'll give you an example of good marketing. Some years ago, someone said, we should somehow legitimize the idea of a designated driver. That is, when you're going out drinking with your friends, you should pick one of you who doesn't drink and who drives home. But people don't do that. So what the, what the Ad Council in the United States did is they created a set of videos to be shown on television. And all it was, show, uh, 15 seconds, that's all you need. It's a party, everyone's drinking. And someone hands a beer to someone and he says, not now, no, I'm the designated driver. That's it. It just models the behavior. So a lot of people couldn't do that. They, they, they just feel, I'm at a party and I'm saying, I'm not going to drink, they'll think I'm odd. But you model the behavior and people will start doing it. That's behavioral science. And that's, now of course there's lots of bad examples from the marketing department as well. Like for example, advertising to try to get women to smoke cigarettes. There were big ad campaigns years past showing glamorous women smoking cigarettes. So I, I think behavioral science can be used for both good and ill. Uh, let's focus on the good side and let's boost our marketing department and encourage them to keep a clear sight of ethics. How can we limit the unintended uses of behavioral science? Do you have any advice for practitioners looking to use these tools for good? So first of all, um, I, I do think we um, have to acknowledge that uh, behavioral 
design is just another tool in our collective toolbox, right? So in that sense, it's not different from incentives or regulation. It is just a different tool. And the behavioral designers, the behavioral economists, should not be in the business of, of deciding where society should go. You know, should we have a higher or lower tax rate? I mean, we can do analysis on that, and we can have an opinion based on economic analysis. But then, how? It, you know, if society, let's assume, is a democratic decision that we'd love to have, you know, a, a higher tax tax rate, for example. Uh, then we should rely on those tools. Um, then we can rely on, on behavioral tools, we can rely on incentives or, or you know, any of those. So in that sense, I think that's just an important message. It is a tool. It is not a destination, it's a tool. Now having said this, um, you know, we as behavioral economists clearly have to be maybe even more careful with our toolbox than maybe some other tools because they can be less transparent. So I do think transparency is important, for example. That is, you know, you know one ingredient that um, will increase, you know, trust in the tool and um, help people, in fact, kind of use the tool more successfully. What is one message you'd like to leave the world leaders gathered here at Davos with? I've only got one wish. <laughs> okay. I would wish that people aim to the support of research on behavioral sciences, particularly randomized controlled trials, the way medical people test drugs, for example, but not just testing drugs, but testing real behavioral interventions like the ones we've described. You never know until you test them how they will work out on real people. And what, so I would like to see more resources directed into that kind of research. It's already happening, but there could be much more. So mine is actually uh, related to Bob's, um, I think unintentionally, but I, I would wish that more decision makers uh, based their judgments on evidence. I think it particularly uh, you know, in this day and age, uh, facts and evidence are just so important. And I am really hoping that we can enable decision makers in the private sector, in the public sector, wherever they might be, uh, with the kind of data, with the kind of insights they need to make uh, smarter decisions. That was Gemma Corrigan talking with Dr. Iris Bonnet and Professor Robert J. Schiller from the Global Future Council on Behavioral Sciences. My name is Rigas Hadzilakos, and that was all from this week's episode of A Glimpse into the Future.